Morning, everyone. Happy Easter to you this morning. It's good to be with all of you today, whether you're here with us in the building or you're gathered with us today online. We are together in Christ. Wherever we are as the church, it is Jesus who holds us together. I want to share something from my heart with you for a moment as many of us receive difficult news this morning. I woke up this morning to what the world might define to be two very different and unrelated messages. I looked at my phone around 5 a.m. and I saw that I had a message from Thelma letting me know that Fred was in his final moments on this earth. Then right below that message on my cell phone was a notification that today's theme for our 40 days of prayer on Easter Sunday is victory. And in light of those circumstances, as we grieve for and with Thelma and the Humpshire family today, in my mind and my heart, I've retitled this morning's message. This is Fred's victory address. Hallelujah, Christ arose. And because he lives, we too can live forever. The resurrection of Jesus truly is a hope-filled and life-giving message, is it not? When we reflect on the resurrection, we can remember what great hope we have. When we reflect on the resurrection, we see the power of God over sin and death. When we consider the empty tomb, we are confronted with the goodness and ever-present faithfulness of our living God. When we observe the stone rolled away, we are reminded that the things which men by our hands intend to close with permanence, God by his hands breaks open eternally. We can gather today, even in our grief. We can gather today, even in difficulty. And we can boldly and loudly and joyfully proclaim the echoes of the prophets. God has delivered his people from the power of the grave. He has redeemed us from death. We boast in the power of Christ over sin and death this morning. We stare down death and we ask, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh grave, is your sting? We who are perishable have been clothed with the imperishable. We, the mortal, have been given the gift of immortality. Death is swallowed up in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So we gather today. And we open the pages of the scriptures and we celebrate the reality 
of everlasting life. Life begetting life begetting life throughout the halls of eternity. Our goal today as we gather together is to explore three landmarks on our road to the empty tomb. We begin with Jesus on the cross, observing the final life-giving words of his pre-resurrection earthly ministry. Then we will move to reflecting on the God-orchestrated final events that brought Jesus to the tomb. And finally, in awe and wonder, we will turn our focus to the landmark of the empty tomb, where we are moved from perplexed to marveled as we encounter the words of the angels, he is not here, but he is risen. Before we unpack these powerful words in more detail, I'd like for us to take a moment and pray together for the Humpshire family. And then I'd like to read from the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning. And perhaps our hearts are a bit perplexed. We celebrate the resurrection of your son. Of life, of power and victory over death. And yet we mourn with one of our sisters. And the Humpshire family, as Fred, has moved on to glory. But we do not grieve as the world grieves. We have great hope today because Jesus lives. Fred lives too. And so, Lord, with heavy hearts, we invite your presence into this time together. We commune with you, we commune with one another, and we celebrate life upon life upon life. In Jesus' name, amen. The word of the Lord from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, 
today you will be with me in paradise. If you take your Bibles this morning, you want to turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We're going to read verses 1 to 12 and be moving between chapter 23 and 24 in our time together in the Word this morning. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. But he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Father, we gather around your word this morning, hearts and minds focused on the power and the glory and the hope of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Work through the ministry of your word this morning. Change us, grow us in Jesus' name. Amen. As you've heard this morning read from some of the earlier accounts in the text, as Jesus was crucified, Luke's account reminds us that almost all who were in attendance had something to say regarding what was happening to Jesus. We heard their words this morning in the text that were read earlier. There were the rulers who were standing by watching. They scoffed. He saved others, let him save himself if he's Christ, the Son of God, the Chosen One. Then there were the soldiers who participated in Jesus' execution. They stood by and mocked Jesus, saying, If you are King of the Jews, save yourself. And there Jesus hung. Part of a public execution as the world watched on. Many ridiculing and antagonizing. Luke's account references the first words of Jesus on the cross in verse 34 of chapter 23. 
Jesus' first words were not words of condemnation aimed at his murderers. Nor were they a desperate plea for help or a cry of pain. His first words from the cross marvelously convey his compassion and his mercy. Seeing with clarity through the pain and the torment of his circumstances, Jesus looks down and declares the goodness of God. If there were ever a doubt in our minds that our God is a good and benevolent God, we need no, look no further than the powerful words that Jesus spoke from the cross. By the hands of evil men, Jesus hung, but by the power of our good and great God from the cross, Jesus declared, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Never, never was the love of enemy more crystal clearly applied than in the forgiveness that Jesus offered on the cross. These men had just tortured him. They'd beat him. They'd put a crown of thorns on his head and pushed it down so it broke his flesh and the blood trickled down his face. The world would have described these people as the enemies of God. Never have we seen the love of the enemy more clearly applied. And then we pause to remember that at one time we were all at enmity with God. And the same forgiveness was extended to us. This is how God demonstrates his love and his goodness to us. It's not that we clean ourselves up and make ourselves look great and then he comes to us. That's not it. He demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Further illustrating the totality of sin that was encompassing this entire event, who do we find next to Jesus on the cross? Two criminals. Also being crucified. And each of the criminals had something to say as well, did they not? The first criminal was looking to save himself. He chastised Jesus. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Save us too. And the second criminal's words rebuked the first criminal. Do you not fear God? You are under the same sentence of condemnation and justly for what we've done. We're justly receiving the reward of our deeds. But in a turn of irony... It is a criminal, a charged 
criminal on the cross who is the first one to declare the innocence of Jesus. He looks towards Jesus. His words still resonate today. This man's done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It was the second criminal who found salvation when he recognized Jesus truly was who he said he was. And he realized his great need for Jesus. Nothing left to hope for in this world. His plea was desperate. Remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Words spoken in faith. The criminal received his eternal reward. As sweeter words could never be heard than what he heard from the king. Jesus said what? Today, today, today. You will be with me in paradise. Jesus' first words to humanity on the cross are words of forgiveness. And his last words to men on the cross were words of salvation. Jesus was clearly focused on accomplishing his mission And he was fully in control all of the way to the bitter end. As we move towards the second landmark, looking at the final breaths of Jesus in chapter 23, verses 44 to 56. Verse 44 of chapter 23 unfurls itself on our way to the tomb. It's noon. That's what time of day it is. The sixth hour. And at three in the afternoon, at three in the afternoon, in the heat of the day, the sun's light will fail, giving way to utter darkness over all the land. The darkness in these moments represents for us the depths of grief, of lament, of mourning, as our sins and the sins of humanity are poured upon Jesus. In the temple, the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the impurity of common man was torn as the son took upon himself the sins of the world. And the father turned his face away. Very soon, man would find full and free access to the Father through Jesus. First, Jesus looked to the Father and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then, in his final breath, he called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus' final words on the cross demonstrated his power and his authority. Jesus had the power to forgive sins. He had the power to grant salvation to sinners, even criminals. And he had the power and the authority to to determine the exact moment 
that he would deliver his spirit to the Father. He is in control. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And then, isn't it interesting? A second proclamation of Jesus' innocence. The first comes from a criminal who's hanging with him. The next comes from a centurion, the leader of 100 Roman soldiers. Taking stock of all that is happening around him, he proclaims this. Certainly, this man was innocent. This is an earth-shaking event. Friends, we sit here today united in the reality that because of this event, because of these moments, nothing in our world would ever be as it was before. Many people are moved to action. First, there are the crowds. The text tells us that the crowds leave, and as they leave, they're beating their breasts. It's a sign of grief, remorse, mourning. A great injustice has been committed. An innocent man has been publicly executed. And then, an unusual character. A good and a righteous man. The Bible says he was good, he was righteous, he was from the ruling counselor, council. He steps forth. He was one who had not consented to the actions of the Pharisees. In the face of injustice, he was moved to action. And where does the text tell us his focus was? Look at verse 51 of chapter 23. Joseph of Arimathea. Where was he looking? What was he looking for? Verse 51, he was looking for the kingdom of God. Joseph of Arimathea looking for the kingdom of God and look at where it takes him. Look at where he ends up. He ends up in the presence of his governor Pilate and he has a rather big ask, does he not? This is huge. Jesus' body no longer belonged to the Jews or the Jewish people. It was now property of the Roman Empire. And a crucified body, a person who was executed publicly, was not to be given a noble burial. But as our memory verse for April reminds us, the kingdom of God consists not in talk, but in power. God is at work through all of these events. This is not accidental. None of these people are here on their own volition or will by accident. God is in control of everything that is happening and transpiring. So boldly, Joseph approaches Jesus' executioner, Pilate. He asks for Jesus' body. Time is of the essence. The Sabbath is approaching and much needs to be done to prepare the body of Jesus 
for his burial. A man of wealth and prosperity. A man of class and privilege. He would take and wrap in a linen shroud the one who had no home and no place to lay his head while he was on earth. And here we are, friends, full circle. As you open the Gospels, the babe was once lovingly wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, he's lovingly wrapped in burial cloths. The beginning of his life, he was gently taken and placed and laid in a manger. And now, he's gently taken and laid in a newly hewn tomb. And as Joseph of Arimathea was earnestly looking for the kingdom of God, he found himself participating in the very ideals of that kingdom. And in Joseph's example, a lesson for us emerges today. Friends, what are we looking for? Where is our focus? Where is our mind? Which kingdom is consuming our thinking in these days? Who is the king that we are to be serving? And what is our king's first and greatest command? For Joseph of Arimathea, it was not his earthly governor. It was not Caesar or his nation. Standing to lose everything, including his own life, motivated by love, he gained Christ. And while Joseph was at work, he was not the only one present. Courageously stood yet another group. They're first mentioned in verse 49 of chapter 23. And now again, you can see them in verse 55. And when you take this group together with the other gospel accounts, we can surmise that this was a group of at least five women, likely more. They too were among Jesus' closest friends and followers. Throughout Jesus' ministry on earth, women served as great examples to us of worship, sacrifice, hospitality, kindness, consolation, and care. If you remember, it was women who had anointed Jesus before his death, and now again, they are coming with spices and ointments to prepare him. For his burial. When the world sought to do away with Jesus through his public execution and death. It were these men and women who rose to the occasion. All of the work now put in. At the end of chapter 23 we're told that on the Sabbath. They rested. And then we move to chapter 24. And here it is. Chapter 24 opens with a foreshadowing that though death has reigned in the narrative up to this point, the narrative is not yet finished. Amen? This is not where it ends. One small transitional phrase. One small transitional phrase with great and glorious hope. 
chapter 24 opens, but. But on the first day of the week. God is not finished yet. Death would not have the final word. More is still to come. And the beginning of a new week brings with it much opportunity. And now is the time for the women to move to the tomb of Jesus, taking with them the spices that they had prepared. Writing about that glorious Easter morning, theologian Jim Wallace said, quote, On that first Easter morning, the women were present at great risk to themselves. They were at the grave of a convicted political criminal who had just been crucified. The guards posted at the tomb could easily have reported the identities of any followers or supporters of this one whom they had killed and whose movement they had now hoped to crush. End quote. As the women arrive at the tomb, it appears that the opportunity is lost as they discover a shocking reality, don't they? The stone has been rolled away from the tomb. The text tells us in verse 3 that they moved into the tomb, but they did not find the body of Jesus. One word sums up the feeling among the women. The text tells us that they were perplexed. This word connotes a feeling of both helplessness and aimlessness. As if we would ask, what are we to do now? Coming to care for Jesus, his body was no longer there. What's next? And isn't it amazing that when our focus is in the right place and our hearts and our minds are prepared to hear from the Lord, that even in perplexity, we can find purpose. These are perplexing days for many of us. As they gather themselves and they look around, behold, there are two men standing in dazzling apparel. And I imagine the women were frightened, as any of us would have been, and they fall with their faces to the ground, waiting for whatever might come next. As it turns out, these men are angels, and they had a message for the women. Look in verse 5. What do they say? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Isn't that what we do at the tomb? The tomb is a place that we come to care for, to reflect on, to remember someone who has died. But Jesus was not dead. The next sentence from the angels confirms the dazzling reality by which we come to find our eternal hope and glory. Look at verse 6. He is not here, but has risen. Jesus had conquered death. The grave was empty. He had done exactly what he said he would do. 
God was and is faithful to always keep his word. The angels speak. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And if you think back with me to the very beginnings of Jesus' earthly ministry in the book of John, John chapter 2, Jesus challenged the Pharisees. The temple that he had challenged the Pharisees and religious leaders to destroy had been destroyed. But just as Jesus said he would in John chapter 2, in three days, he raised it back up. For friends, the true temple is not one that's built by human hands as if God is somehow dependent on us. The true temple is the resurrected body of our Lord. Jesus said this, and it's in the words, land so strongly with us on a day like today, thinking about his resurrection. Jesus said, abide in me. Yes, it was his example to go to the temple. Yes, it was his example to go and pray. But what he commands of his disciples and his believers is that we abide in him. Jesus said that life could only be found in him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Only through Christ can we have a right relationship with God. Jesus has conquered sin and death. Our faith is not in vain because of the reality that Jesus Christ is risen. I once heard a pastor say, if Jesus Christ isn't risen from the dead then Sunday mornings we should be gathering for tea and cookies rather than worship service. He's right. There's purpose and there's meaning to what we do here because Jesus did what he said he would do. And now, what was darkness in chapter 23 has given way to the marvelous light In chapter 24. And the women who have gathered. We are told in verse 8. Now they recall and remember the words of Jesus. And they are given an important message to share with others. Now we might marvel. That Jesus would choose to first appear to women at the tomb. Especially when we consider the place and the testimony of women in the ancient Near Eastern world. And friends, I'm reminded that the good news is not a message that's solely for the high and mighty, the respected and the wealthy and the high class of society. The power of the message does not depend on the position of the one who delivers it. Rather, the power of the message depends on the authority of the one who has given it. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 28, 18? All authority has been given to me. 
on heaven and earth. And just as Jesus, with all authority, came to the least of these, according to the world's standards, so too would he first reveal his resurrected body to those who would have been considered among the least of these in their day. The powerful message of the resurrection is given to those who would have been considered among the weakest of vessels in the ancient Near Eastern society. Friends, it is a perfect example of God's power being made perfect in our weakness. I was blessed last week by the ministry of Peter Greer. I suspect many of you too also shared in that blessing. And if you remember, Peter astutely reminded us that while the women were receiving this message, the men were hiding behind locked doors in fear of what might happen to them. The question that we might ask this morning is how does living in fear influence the way that this good news is received? Verse 10 tells us that Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, along with the other women, went and shared this good news with the apostles. Jesus is risen. And then verse 11 quickly grounds us in this sobering truth that the good news of Jesus' resurrection will not be happily and hospitably received by all who hear it. Look at verse 11. What does it say? Take a look. But these words seem to them, to the disciples, to the apostles, an idle tale, and they did not believe them. The resurrection stands as the pinnacle moment in the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest and most hope-filled event that's related to the gospel. Through his resurrection, death is defeated forever. Because he lives, all who belong to him also will live. Yet still today, still today, many in our world will receive this news in the same way the first disciples Received it. Why? Because friends fear. Is still a big motivator. In our lives. And there is so much in this world that we can be fear filled. And anxious about. And sometimes as we see in the example of the disciples here. Fear keeps us turned inward. Hidden. Locked behind doors, stowed away. Other times fear causes us to act in hate and ignorance towards others. Expressing ourselves in ways that are unbecoming of the gospel of Jesus. God's word says perfect love casts out all fear. Now I know this. On this earth. There is no way that I can show any one of you perfect love. Oh, I fail. Oh, I am weak. I am in no stretch of the imagination a good or perfect leader 
I will not love you perfectly. I promise you that. I will let you down. We'll learn more about that in the coming weeks as we continue in Corinthians. But I do know someone who can love you perfectly. And I can tell you about that person. And I can tell you that he can love you perfectly in power because he is God. His name is Jesus. And while I can't love you perfectly, I can promise you that Jesus can and he will. Now watch this. Watch what happens. The truth of Jesus' physical resurrection is actually fear-shattering news. It's news that obliterates that which we might fear the most, the wages of our sin, death. And like the disciples, yes, there are some in our lives who might receive this news as an idle tale. They might say that we're crazy, that we're delusional, that we're Jesus freaks or whatever else that they might come up with. And the reality is our words may do very little to convince them. Some may never believe. There are some that will have to see for themselves. They'll look at the patterns of our lives taken together with our words and they'll see if we really are living what our words say that we believe. But watch how this good news completely transforms the posture of Peter. Peter, the one who had denied Jesus three times. The one who's now hiding behind locked doors in fear. Peter, and as other gospel accounts describe, John 2. They were both done hiding. And we get to watch how the powerful message of Jesus' resurrection transforms a person from one who hides one who is fearful, to one who goes, who runs, who marvels at the great things the Lord has done. And then because he can't contain them within himself or herself, they absolutely go and share that good news with others. The work on the cross complete, the resurrection from the dead accomplished, the time for hiding is done. Verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Look at all the verbs. Stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. This news changed his life. Changed our lives. And he went and he preached. And he taught. And he wrote letters to churches. And people came to know Jesus through his ministry. And the message, friends, today is not any different. It is the same exact message. Jesus 
has risen from the dead. Amen. For those of us, friends, in Christ, living in the light of the resurrection, we have a powerful, life-giving, fear-shattering message to share with others. God can use it to break down walls and strongholds. I've seen him do it. Perhaps you've seen him do it as well. And friends, we live marveling at the power of God to overcome the sin of the world, conquer death, and find himself raised to life. Our team is going to come this morning. We are going to join together singing the powerful truth, Christ the Lord is risen today. And as this message takes root in our lives, we are motivated to move from behind locked doors and go and share this message with others. There is hope, there is freedom, there is power, there is life. Because He lives, we can face whatever tomorrow holds. Christ is risen. Let's pray. Lord, we are reminded of these powerful truths once again this year. Gathered around your word. Reflecting on the powerful reality of your resurrection. We pray, Lord, that you would motivate our hearts and our minds and our attitudes and our behaviors and the patterns of our lives to be a people who are able to boldly proclaim and share this powerful fear-shattering news with others. And Lord, might we see the fruit of that message take root in other people's lives as we run to them and share with them this hope that's transformed our lives. You are a good and powerful God. And we are so thankful that you are faithful to keep your word. We are so thankful for the resurrection of our Savior Jesus. And might our lives express that gratitude today. In Jesus' name, amen.